From its earliest days, the church has needed help remembering and embracing its calling. Um, Paul wrote letters for this very purpose. Uh, this is one example of a letter that he wrote. It was intended for a greater audience than just the church at Ephesus. Um, it was not unlike a letter that my father used to receive on a regular basis, uh, once a year at least, uh, sometimes more often. He was a part of what was called a round robin letter. Uh, have you ever heard of that? It's an interesting thing of generations past. Um, he got in on it at college, or at least just after college. There were several friends of his that wanted to make sure that they stayed in contact with each other. And after the days at Asbury College, uh, my dad, my dad and his friends scattered across, literally across the United States. And so the way in which they kept in contact was by having a large envelope into which they would deposit letters. When the envelope would reach their house, they would read the other five letters, add their letter to it, send it to the next person on the list who would then read all of the letters that were there and send and add their letter and send it to the next person on the list. When it got back to you, of course, you would update and remove the letter that uh, you had initially put in there. And so this was a constant cycle uh, amidst those friends over the course of probably 40 or 50 years. They uh, would communicate with each other like that. It became interrupted by uh, deaths and illnesses of those that were in the group. But I can remember that uh, packet of letters arriving at our house and thinking, well, dad's reading somebody else's mail. It looked like that, you know, and and truly he was. I mean, some of the letters were uh, to everyone and, and yet some of it was particular to certain persons in the group. And there was something excited about, exciting about it. Um, Ephesians is a letter that was intended from its beginning to be circulated to other churches. Uh, you can look on a map and see sort of where the other churches might have been located in that area around Ephesus and began to think that uh, either there were multiple copies of it that were circulated or this one copy was preserved and carried uh, by way of someone who would make sure that it got to its rightful locations in order that Ephesus would not be the only place that learned of what Paul was thinking about when he was encouraging the church to remember and to continue to embrace its calling. These were instructions um, on how to live well together. That's what this sermon series has been about. Instructions for the church on how to live well together. And if you think about this, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was getting at from the very beginning of this letter. And uh, there's a passage of scripture in the first chapter, particularly that I'd like to share with you that begins with the eighth verse. Um, with all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's a fascinating passage of scripture to me. And if you really want to know a way to the heart of the theology that is, has taken residence in my soul 
this is the verse that describes what I believe with all of my heart that God is doing. Let me read it again. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And he's asked us that we might participate as well. In fact, over in the fourth chapter, do you remember a couple of weeks ago as, uh, as we were addressing the scripture there and where we read that Paul, who is a prisoner in the Lord, begs us, begs you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. If you wonder what our bishop is going to be talking about tomorrow night and you're perplexed by the issues that are before the church, I encourage you to show up because I can tell you that our bishop will be focusing on the bond of peace. He will be talking about what it means to be one church. He will be talking about how important it is, how crucial it is that we live well together, that we are unified in spirit and in purpose as much as we are able, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. Paul marks this point by encouraging and challenging. In fact, he uses pragmatic oppositions as he moves throughout the telling of this letter. And you've read this letter before, I'm sure. But there's particular things that he chooses in order to mark the contrasts. You know, these are new Christians, relatively at least. And as he's coming to address them again, he is helping them to understand the difference between the old life and the new life that they have assumed. But they need to be remem remembering this. They need to be reminded of it. And so he's saying to them, you know what the contrast is. You know what living in the old world uh, was like for you. And now you have tasted what it means to be a part of Christ. And so choose Christ. <laughs> Let this continue to be a part of who you are, the definition of your life. There are other contrasts that he use, uses. And at several points in the letter, he specifically talks about uh, the contrast between love and lust. And you and I get very confused on this subject. Uh, we say so much that there is a gray area there. And I don't deny that it can be uh, somewhat uh, of a mystery in trying to figure out that matter. But you know in your heart, you know in your heart what the difference between love and lust is. If you will simply, simply give it some thought and give it some prayerful consideration. He goes on as well to talk about light and darkness. John is not the only one that talks about it, but he relates the importance of you and I living in the light, choosing the light and being chosen by the light rather than by the darkness of our world. And here in the passage that has been read today, specifically he focuses in on wisdom and foolishness and the contrast between these two important parts of choice that we get to make. You and I get to choose as to how foolish we will be or how wise we will be in Christ. Let me uh, read just a little bit of 
the passage that precedes the one that was read for us this morning. Uh, this is beginning in the, um, in the eighth verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And then skipping over to the next page, which I should have been reading from just then, here we go in the fifth chapter rather than the third chapter. It says, live as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, sleeper awake, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And I really shouldn't speak those words. They really should be sung. Sleeper awake, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. No, I shouldn't be singing that. You should be singing that, right? This is, this, is a, this is a baptismal chant. And so I need your assistance with this because we're gonna make it antiphonal here. And so crank up your voices. All right, let's get ready here with this. If I can remember how we start it once again, let me get it. I got it. I've got it. Sleeper awake. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Okay, that was the explanation for how it's supposed to be sung. And now I want you to throw yourselves into it completely. Let me hear this side sing. Sleeper awake. Sleeper awake. All right. How many times is this going to take? Let's see. Let's try this again. Let's side, this side. Sleeper awake. Okay, let's try, let's do, let's don't get ahead of ourselves. Sleeper awake. Sleeper awake. Okay, and this side, rise from the dead. Y'all did good with that. That's great, okay. And Christ will shine on you. Okay, so now let's try it. These two sides and then join in the middle. Here we go. Sleeper awake, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Sleeper awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Y'all did great. Y'all did great. I have no idea. I know you're saying that's not in the Bible. It's not. I have no idea what the tune would be. What I'm saying to you is that when it was spoken, it was sung. It was a chant. These were new Christians that were being formed by baptism and they were claiming with excitement what they had been given in Christ. Their lives were being touched by the nature of who Christ was and it wasn't just something that they could easily, easily dismiss. But Paul was saying, don't forget that excitement, that, that with which you were baptized. Hold on to it with all of your might. You and I allow so much to slip away from us. This passage says, be careful then how you live. You better be careful because you'll forget. If it's left up to you, you'll forget the intensity that has brought you to be a part of the believing community. 
the days are evil. Literally, the days are evil. Paul would point out to us. Did you pick up on the news this past week that there was a white nationalist group, a supremacist group, a parade and rally in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital? And we believe in the freedom of speech. But for that to go unopposed would be unthinkable. I am so grateful that that the Methodist church by way of a particular bishop came up with another plan for that day. And that the rally that was opposing the white supremacists that were in Washington, D.C. was far greater in number than the initial rally that had been scheduled. And so those that were holding up the signs, unite the right, unite the right, unite the right, were met with other signs that were saying, unite to love, unite to love, unite to love. What a powerful thing it is to look out at a sea of people of all colors, nations, races that are convinced in their heart to live well together. Bishop Luttrell Easterling was the one that was in charge of that. It would not have happened had it not been a vision sent from God to do something, to take the scripture seriously and to let our lives be this wall against evil within our world. Figuratively, we know that the evil that is a part of the world is also a part of us. In fact, we can fritter away our days and that's evil in and of itself. Time escapes me even more quickly the older I get. It used to be that when I was a child, it seemed like it took ever for Christmas to arrive. And now Christmases go by just like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's amazing how fast time will fly. You and I need to remember that our cemeteries are covered with monuments bearing the birth dates and the death dates of those that are deceased and lying there in the soil. And in between those two dates, there is a dash. I have a question for you. What are you doing with your dash? How is it? How is it? that you are spending your days between birth and death. The Apostle Paul calls us to be careful how we live. Do not be foolish, but understand the will of God. He goes on here in the 18th verse to get very specific. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, I don't know if debauchery is tipsy or if it is drunk or if it is dead drunk. I don't know the definition. Some people let themselves off very easily with this passage of scripture. And I'm not here to tell you that this is a prohibition. I mean, this people to whom he was preaching, we're not going to become teetotalers because wine at least was a part of the culture. But he was asking them to be sensitive and aware of themselves and what harm is done. Did you know that, that in the United States, 
that we spend, we consume $20 billion worth of alcoholic beverages, not a year, but a month. 20, I, I checked this myself. I, I went online because I was just curious. And now the, the figures were from 2016, but do y'all imagine that it has gone up or gone down? I think it's probably pretty similar. $20 billion a month. And the reason I mention that is just simply to make you aware that alcohol can be an anesthetic for us. It can numb us to the nature of what the Spirit wishes to do in our lives. And it is not alone. There are any number of other things that can become such a part of who we are that, that we are permeated with everything but the Spirit because we allow all in. And I would remind you, as he said, the days are evil. There are things that should be filtered out. It can rob us of life when we are meant to be filled with the Spirit. Sue and I were living in Osceola for a period of time years ago. And in that little town, which was a Mayberry sort of place, we had our Otis. If any of you have ever watched Mayberry, you know who Otis is. Otis in this town, and I'll use that name to refer to him rather than his real name, but, but he, he would be inebriated not just during the week or on Saturday evening. He would be inebriated on Sunday mornings in particular, I can remember. And I never did know exactly whose church he was a part of, but he would show up in our worship service and he would come and sit down at the very front Usually he made his appearance sometime during the first hymn. And he would sit there and I would wonder to myself, is it going to happen again this Sunday? He was not always there, but when he would show up, I would ask myself, is it going to happen again today? Because nine times out of 10, he would stand up in the middle of my sermon and leave. And that was frustrating at best. You know, finally, I said to him, I, I, said, I said to him after worship, when I, I said, where do you go when you leave? And he said, to the Baptist church, and I, which was, you know, injury even more, you know. And, I, and so I engaged the Baptist preacher with the, with the question, you know, and he said, oh, don't take it personally. He comes over here when he's not there with you first on Sunday. He comes over here and he leaves in the middle of my sermon to go to you. So it, uh, but I, I've been thinking to myself, what was he in search of, you know? What was he in search of? And was his condition, I can remember him listing to the side, you know, as we moved through the service, you know, and he was not in, he was not in a condition to receive the word of God preached. He was not in the condition to receive the spirit of God. And this is, this is what Paul is saying. Do not get drunk with wine for it's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. As you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts and giving thanks to God, the father at all times. 
What a beautiful thing it is to think about. We uh, wish to be a people, I hope, who are really a part of that way of thinking. There are all kinds of things that come in on our fax machine and, and uh, just stuff that is so um, unconnected with anything here at the church. And I know you can't read this, uh, but I'll read it for you. But this is one fax that, uh, that came in on our fax machine. Uh, we have buyers for your business. And I thought to myself, I'm going to hold on to that. That's just too good. Uh, you know, I, I thought to myself, boy, I, I wish we did have buyers for the business, not to buy us out, but people that would buy in, buy in to the investment of what the apostle Paul is referring to. Buying into this idea of gratitude, living with gratitude, living with the sense that it does matter. It does matter how you and I perceive the world around us and how we relate to it. I, uh, I believe that the Spirit wishes to fill us, but we act very much as if we do not wish to be filled. And we usually make it uh, an excuse on our part because of our circumstances in particular. I have shared with you uh, before, but I cannot help but share again about George McPhee, who is a resident in Haiti. And George McPhee um, is in a care home there because he has Hansen's disease. He has leprosy and leprosy has eaten away at uh, the corpus of who he is. He has lost the digits, his fingers on his hands uh, because of the loss of circulation and part of his ear is gone. He's, he's blind, uh, he looks uh, forward, but you can tell that there is no vision there at all. Uh, he is very distorted in many ways, but uh, there's a book in my office that is entitled Everything You Needed to Know About Prayer You Can Learn from the Poor. And he is a very, very poor man. And they attribute it. I, I think that it probably is giving him more credit uh, that he might have penned this uh, than, than he is due. But uh, it is just as significant to, to think that he preserved this in some way in his mind because it is an incredible poem that goes like this, I'll never, I've never made a fortune, I'll never make one now, but it really doesn't matter because I'm happy anyhow. As I go along my journey, I'm reaping better than I've sowed, I'm drinking from my saucer cause my cup is overflowed. How do you say that when you've got leprosy, when you cannot see, when your hands do not function the way that they once did, where you can hardly hear, where, where you are just, just this pawn in the world how do you say this? I don't have a lot of riches and sometimes the going's tough, but with kin and friends to love me, I think I'm rich enough. I thank God for the blessings that his mercy has bestowed. I'm drinking from my saucer cause the cup is overflowed. He gives me strength and courage when the way grows steep and rough. I'll not ask for other blessings for I'm already blessed enough. May we never be too busy to help bear another's load. Then we'll all be drinking from the saucer when our cups have overflowed. It's interesting that Jesus spoke a lot about thanks in his heart. 
even though it's not recorded so much in scripture. Do you remember when he was standing just outside the tomb and waiting on that moment in which Lazarus would be raised from the dead, that he began to pray and he said, Father, I, I thank you. Father, I, I thank you for having heard me. And then he goes on to, to say, he says, I'm saying this, of course, because I know that you hear me all the time, but this is for the sake of those that are around me that I'm saying this out loud. That was such a window to who he was. Don't you know that Jesus was filled to overflowing with thanksgiving, that in everything that he was encountered, I'm not saying that, that he did not encounter very difficult things, and especially in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was, was thinking about and sweating droplets of blood and thinking about whether that cup might pass from him, that, that going to the cross, that was, that was a thing that caused great pain uh, in his mind and it was going to be difficult for him to go through. But as, as we think about Jesus, don't we know him to be this thankful personality, this, this revelation of the very nature of who God is and what God is about in the world? Now, you and I look at our difficulties and we don't know what to do with them because they become this constraining point for us because we think to ourselves, what is it that God is allowing to occur in my life or what is he putting in my life that I deserve what I've got to deal with? And I go back to what I think Jesus might have had on his mind. In Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. This is a part of who we are. And Paul is saying, remember this part of who you are. Remember it and let it be impressed upon your life because those of you who are not going through something hard right now, you will go through something very difficult. How do you want to go through something that is difficult? Do you want to go through it living in gratitude? Or do you want to be crushed by the evils of the world? The Greeks use the word Eucharistia, and which is an interesting word because it is used particularly uh, in Roman Catholic faith and in, in the religion, in the church, uh, to denote what we would call Holy Communion. The Eucharist is that mass uh, to which all the people are gathered. And it is a reminder that when we gather with the Lord as being the center of our focus, we gather as a people in thanksgiving. How is it that you are here today? Do you come with a thankful heart? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, the apostle Paul told, told the Christians there, in everything that you do, give thanks. And I have an easier time with that statement than I do with the one that was read today because I've always clarified that. He's not saying to give thanks for the things uh, that are going wrong in your life. He is saying to you, whatever's going on in your life, you can be thankful in some way to live this life of gratitude. But here, the screws are tighter because he specifically says, giving thanks to God, the Father at all times and 
for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know you're saying to me, you can't do that. You can't, you cannot do that. I mean, considering some of the, the, the very deep and dark evil that is a part of our culture and our world, you cannot give thanks. God would not want us to give thanks for those things. And I, I want to agree with you I, because I know, I know some of those things that I would not give thanks over. But I don't want us to dismiss it so quickly because he chose the word for. I didn't choose, choose the word for. And is it possible? Is it possible to live in such a way that we might even give thanks for the things that we are having to encounter in order that it draws us closer to where God wants us to be. This could be hyperbole, it could be exaggeration. And so I wanna take it with a grain of salt, but not so much so that I throw out the meaning that Paul intended. And I believe that in his imprisonment and with the difficulties of his life, he had learned even to be thankful for the difficulties of his life. Have you learned that yourselves? You get this, don't you? The pattern of living with gratitude is incredibly important. We are called to be the awakened and wise people of God, stewards of time and stewards of gratitude. Don't miss that opportunity. This is your dash. Do not miss that opportunity. Sleeper awake, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Sleeper awake, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Sleeper awake, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Remember that. Remember that. With all your strength, remember it. Christ will guide you to live in gratitude. 